Good morning, church family. Uh, what a joy it is to, to worship with you. And uh, I just want to thank Kyle and Macy for uh, leading us in worship this morning. Uh, what, a, what a blessing it is to have uh, leaders, servant leaders that are willing to, to lead out. Um, we're going to continue on this morning in uh, a vision for leaders. And all of us are leaders in, in different ways in our family and uh, in our workplace, in our church. And so uh, I believe that we need to allow God to give us a vision of, of what that looks like and what his desire is. Um, this morning, uh, I want to talk a little bit about defining the vision. Last week, we, we talked about uh, preparing for the vision um, that God has for us and, and what that looks like. And this is um, similar to that, uh, but I want to uh, talk about defining the vision you know, Proverbs 19, verse 21 says, Many are the plans of a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. You know, something happened dramatic that, that just it took over Nehemiah in the four-month time lapse between chapter 1 and chapter 2. He moved from pre- preparing for the vision to defining a very specific vision. He defined his vision during those months between the chapters. And so we, we have a silent part here that we kind of uh, understand. He prepared for the vision, but in that four-month uh, silent time, that's when the, 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 the vision got defined. And, um, you know, when God leads us, when God leads us, he gives us specific leadership. See, I believe that God gives us specific leadership in the area of vision. Those specifics would include what he wants us to do, when he wants us to do it, and how he wants us to do it. See, God is is that way. He works that way. He doesn't lay out the whole plan all at once, but he's very specific in the vision that he gives us. Nehemiah understand this, that Nehemiah did not rely on his resume. He did not rely on his past accomplishments. When when he understood and began to prepare for the vision, he knew that God was was going to use that in a mighty way. And he began to to seek God and to search him and and, and with weeping and fasting and praying. And, And we really see that in Then it comes time for him, as he's prepared for the vision, he receives this vision, and it's time to define what that vision looks like. And he got out his tools, and I want to go through some of those tools this morning um, so that he could handle the tasks that were ahead of him. If you have your scripture and you would open it up to Nehemiah, uh, I want to read about 10 verses there. In Nehemiah chapter 2, I want to begin in uh, just the very last line in in chapter 1, and then I want to read down through verse 10. And so uh, if you would read along with me uh, in God's Word. Nehemiah chapter 1, into verse 11 says this, Now I was the cupbearer to the king. And it came about in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart, 
Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city and the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river so that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, they were very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Loving Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would honor that word in each of our hearts. Holy Spirit, prepare us to receive your message. Father, show us what you desire. We love you and we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You know, we're going to look at these tools that that Nehemiah had in his toolbox as he defined the vision that God is giving him. I mean, Nehemiah had a lot of tools, and he pulled them out one by one just when he needed them. See, the first tool that Nehemiah used was a tool called waiting. We find that in in the very first part of chapter 2, verse 1. There was a four-month window there. You know, Nehemiah was a man of decisive action. He was, and, and when he prayed, it was natural for him, uh, for, for him to ask God to provide an early, if not immediate, opportunity to speak to the king. You remember the closing in chapter 1 that indicated that Nehemiah, he says there, he says he wanted, uh, grant your, service, uh, your servant, make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man, meaning the king. And so he, he, uh, this, he wanting success today in the presence of the king. But notice he waited patiently on the Lord for an answer. Just as we're urged to do in Hebrews 6, uh, verse 12, it says, Imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what was promised. See, Nehemiah could weep. And pray, but he also could wait 
and pray. Have you had to wait on God to answer a prayer? You know, in Nehemiah's prayer journal, one of the things we have here, nothing was entered for four months because nothing happened. He was waiting. He was waiting. He was waiting. Friends, waiting time is not wasted time. Quiet reflection may have provided Nehemiah with fresh insight about just how to approach the king. I mean, God wants each of us to get real familiar with this tool. We're going to have to use it a lot. It's called waiting. I don't like it. You don't like it. We, are, we live in an impatient world. God put this in, in, in vision and was preparing Nehemiah for this vision, and part of that was to wait. He waited four months before he was able to talk and speak to the king about what God had put on his heart. Four months of praying, of waiting. The second tool he fished out of his toolbox was called trusting. (laughs) You know, Nehemiah was sad in the last part of, of verse 1. It says there that uh, he was, there, there was nothing, this is nothing but sadness of heart. And he says, I was very much afraid. And I, I know this, um, this word was used three t- other times when uh, described how he looked when he was in the presence of the king. And the king asked him the question to find out why Nehemiah was not his chipper self, you know. And, and uh, Nehemiah kind of freaked out when Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes asked him this question because he knew that the king only wanted to be around happy people. Especially when the, the wine taster, the, the cupbearer, was sad. That's not a good thing in the sight of the king. Nehemiah says that he was very much afraid, which could be translated uh, literally, a fear, a terrible fear came over him. See, I think he was very much afraid for two reasons. He knew that he was expected to be perfectly content just to be in the presence of the king. Subjects who were sad or melancholy around the king were usually executed for reigning on his parade. Second, he was about to ask the monarch of the Persian Empire, basically who ruled the known world, to reverse a written policy he had made several years earlier about Jerusalem's reconstruction. We have this edict, this letter, this uh, command from the king that was recorded in Ezra chapter 4, verse 21. And this is what it says. It says, now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Nehemiah knew it was going to take the power of God to get Artaxerxes to change his mind. I think I'd be afraid too. Knowing that you're going against a royal edict, knowing that your sadness in his presence is enough for him to execute you. 
I want to ask you a question this morning. What are you afraid of today? I mean, some of you might be afraid of your past. Maybe you're worried that something you did a long time ago is going to catch up with you. Maybe you're afraid of the present and you find yourself crippled by fear. Maybe fear of infection or maybe fear of other people or, I don't know, snakes or confined spaces. Others of you might be fearful about the future or even about death. You know, in a best-selling book from several years ago, it was called Who Moved My Cheese?, the author asks a very penetrating question. What would you do if you weren't afraid? What would you do if you weren't afraid? And he points out that fear often keeps us from taking the steps that we know we need to take. Fear can paralyze us. I mean, there certainly is fear in some folks as we move forward in reopening our church. But we can't let that keep us from following God's leading. Fortunately, Nehemiah's faith was greater than his fear. He did the right thing because he believed in the promises of God. Notice what happened. He says in verse 2, Then I was very much afraid. Verse 3 says, I said to the king. Instead of paralyzing him, fear propelled him, Nehemiah, into action. See, months of prayer. Listen, months of prayer had prepared him for these crucial minutes. Courage filled him from the inside because he knew God was with him. When he realized it was no longer possible to hide his grief, that courage welled up inside of him. The king said, why are you sad? Then using wisdom, he affirms his boss, the king, by saying, long live the king. He explains why he was sad. I mean, why should my face not look sad when the city of my father's was buried where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Did you notice that Nehemiah never mentions the name of the city? Because Jerusalem's history of independence might have turned the king's thoughts toward questions of politics and national security. But instead of going political... Nehemiah chose the personal route. That's usually the better choice. What Nehemiah did say was, I want to honor the burial place of my fathers. Now this made a lot of sense to the, the king because the Persians honored their dead as well. See, Nehemiah's fear could have led him to be very timid, but instead he used the tool of trusting very effectively. In verses 4 and 5, Nehemiah pulls out another very well-used tool. The tool of praying. See, Nehemiah uh, chapter 2, verse 4, 
begins with a very direct question from the king. He says, what would you request? In other words, what is it you want? And before answering, the king of Persia, Nehemiah, needed to speak briefly with the king of heaven. I love this because the text says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. This had to be a short prayer because it happened between the time the king asked the question and Nehemiah's answer. I picture him sending up an arrow prayer, kind of like doing some instant messaging with God. He obviously didn't have time to drop to his knees or even to bow his head. If he had done that, the king would have suspected maybe he was guilty of treason. Why are you sad? What is it you want? He drops to one knee. He probably feels like he's betrayed him in some way. His emergency prayer was backed up by four months of fasting and prayer. He wanted to consult the God of heaven. Folks, this is encouraging to me because we can pray at any time, in any place, by sending up even brief prayers to God. I mean, right before he gave an answer to his boss, before responding maybe to our spouse, or when our, we're disciplining our kids, or, or looking for a way to impact our neighborhood for Christ, just shoot up a prayer. Doesn't have to be long, doesn't, doesn't have to be even audible. We need to make good use of these moments of sending up what I want to call popcorn prayer to God. See, I'm convinced that this is the only way for us to fulfill what 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, where we're challenged to pray continually. Nehemiah, he was praying continually. Even in the presence of the king, he prayed to the God of heaven. He was waiting. He was trusting. He was praying. And now the next tool, the tool of planning. We see this in verses 5 through 8. Nehemiah lifted his heart to God and now he, he must have opened his mouth to the king. And he practiced both dependent praying and deliberate planning. Folks, this is good for us to hear. Some people think that all you have to do is pray. Others focus almost exclusively on planning. It shouldn't be either or, but it should be both and. They go together. We work as hard as we can, and we pray as hard as we can, and somewhere in the middle, God meets us. That's what we see in Nehemiah. We're called to pray and plan. We're called to worship and work. We're called to, um, to do these type of things and to make requests and to fill out petitions. He answers the king confidently and respectfully. Which of these two do you struggle with? I mean, when you think about asking and answering the question, the, king, uh, the king's question confidently, you know, he didn't go in there... Um, boasting about things or saying well I told the king or he didn't go in there and say no sir I don't need anything Mr. King sir 
No, he was confident in what he asked for. But he was also respectful in that. He wasn't braggadocious. He wasn't, well, I just told the king what I wanted. He went in and he said, long live the king. And then he approached the king confidently but respectfully. See, notice that he knew how to answer the king's questions. I want to say that Nehemiah anticipated the questions related to how long his journey was going to take. So when the king asked, Nehemiah gave him a time frame. He had been planning. He had been thinking about it. He had been probably putting his plan to to paper and pen. He also knew how to plan the dangerous journey by asking for letters from the king's on the king's stationery. He asked for safe passage through the different territories he would have to cross. But he didn't stop there. We see in verse 8 that he wanted permission to take some of the, the timber out of the king's own forest. Now he wasn't asking for a gift certificate to Lowe's or Home Depot. He had done some research and he, know, he knew even the keeper of the king's lumberyard was named Asaph. See, he had done his research. He had done his planning. This forest was also called paradise in Hebrew and probably looked like a park filled with orchards. Nehemiah planned for and asked for and received three things from the king. He received permission. He received protection. And he received provisions. Notice that the final tool that he pulled out in verses 8 through 10 was, his, was the tool of testifying. He gave testimony to the goodness of God in answering his prayers, in guiding his mind, in directing his speech, and in meeting his needs. Look at the last part of verse 8. Verse 8, he says, And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. Only God could have brought about such a dramatic change in the king's mind and the cupbearer's destiny. See, Nehemiah knew that was what was taking place, that everything had to do with God's arranging, not human positioning, not posturing, not contriving or conniving, but it was all in God's hands. It's like what Psalm 118.23 says, The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. <laughs> See, Nehemiah had meticulous, he had been meticulous in his planning, but it would have not been enough if it were not for the Lord's perfect timing, the Lord's constant guidance, and his overruling provision. See, as we move into memorial reopening next week, I am confident that we will see the gracious hand of God upon us. But we must use the same tools, the tools of waiting, of trusting, of praying, of planning.
And then we'll see God do something truly amazing. When he does, we will testify about his gracious provision. Now, verse 10 introduces some some bad guys, and we'll get to them later on. Let's just say they cast a long shadow over this, uh, this story. This morning, I just quickly want to give you three directions concerning defining the vision. The first one I would say is this. Discover your purpose. The major question we must ask here is what does God want us to do? See, this is the first and biggest question of vision. What is it that God wants us to do? I mean, most of us have worked those 500 or 1,000 piece jigsaw puzzles. And what do you work first on the puzzle? Where do you start? Where do you begin? You begin with the borders, those straight-edged pieces. Why is that? Because they're easier, number one. And they also give us parameters for the rest of the puzzle. They frame the picture for us. See, vision is a lot like a jigsaw puzzle. You get it one piece at a time. Discovering your purpose is the border of that puzzle. Your purpose will frame the rest of the vision. Secondly, I would say you need to define your target. This is probably the most controversial part of the vision. There are some questions we must ask as we try to determine our target. Who is our immediate community? That simply means who's living right here around our church. Who is our primary target? Some churches reach multiple groups, but defining our primary target is important. And who has God put in this community that we are best equipped to reach? See, many churches, they are like well-intentioned but misguided deer hunters. They sit on top of the hill overlooking their communities with rifle in hand, shooting in every direction at everything that moves. They're killing cows, they're hitting rocks, they're hitting trees, they're shooting up a storm, but they aren't getting any deer. Folks, no church reaches everyone. That's why a sovereign God has allowed millions of churches in the world to reach millions of different local communities of people. And each church reaches different people. You know, defining our target is a scriptural idea. I mean, here's some examples. Paul's target, it was to the Gentiles. In Romans eleven thirteen, he says, I am an apostle of the Gentiles. That was his target. Peter's target were the Jews. Paul writes this about Peter in Galatians 2, 7. He says, I have been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. And so he's, he's sharing what these targets were for different people. James's target were the Jews who were being persecuted. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, James writes in James 1, 1. Jeremiah's target, the kings and the people of Judah. Jeremiah 1.18 says the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. Jonah's target, Jonah 1.2, is the backslidden people of Nineveh. God told him to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. So each of these examples have target audiences, target people that they are trying to reach. 
It's very scriptural. And deciding on the target is a good and biblical idea. So you define your target in four ways. Geographically, demographically, culturally, and spiritually. Those are four ways we can define our target. And lastly, I would say this. Define your strategy. See, this is where a lot of churches make problems. They, they make two mistakes when it comes to strategy. Number one is they define strategy before defining their purpose and their target. In other words, they already have a set of programs they are committed to. They put the cart before the horse. We want to do this. We want to do this. We want to do this. This is what it needs to look like rather than defining the vision of what God has called them to. Secondly, they are event-driven rather than process-driven in their strategy. The church calendar tends to run them rather than them running their church calendar. Folks, these are two ways that we need to look at, especially in this climate of change that is going on all across our world right now. What must change? What must not change? And what is the best order of change? See, we as leaders need to be defining this vision, not only for our homes, not only for our workplace, not only for our church, but also for our entire world. In these days, we must prepare for vision, but we also must define our vision. Let's pray together. Loving Father, I thank you for this time. I recognize, Father, that you put this before us at this time in our history. Father, it's no accident as we are being led by you that, that these scriptures come up, that these scriptures come before us for such a time as this. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for the sacrifice that you have made for us. And we want to be about your great commission. We want to be about going out and evangelizing and making disciples of all the nations. Father, we want to we do your, your bidding. We want to do your work here and now. Father, guide us in that. Father, may we spend time waiting. Father, may we spend time trusting and planning and praying so that we can spend time testifying about how great and mighty you are. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would reign in our hearts. I ask that you would bring tremendous unity in not only our body here at Memorial, but also in churches all over this land and all around this world. Father, I pray for unity in the body of Christ. Lord, I ask that you would help us as we distill this, this vision that you've given us. And Father, that we would come back prepared, ready to work and serve with a new vigor, with a new uh, temperament, Father, with a new desire and zeal for you. I pray, Father, that you would complete the vision that you've planted in each one of us. Lord Jesus, thank you. 
for being our God and our King. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would have your way in us. And even at this moment, at this time, that you would draw men and women to you as only you can. We know that that is your will, Father. So we ask according to your will. Father, bring us to repentance over our sin, over the things that are going on in our nation. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name.